when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's third defeat on her Brexit deal, what is likely to happen next, and the beginning of the impending Conservative leadership contest. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Whitehall editor James Blitz, and deputy opinion editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also do like a positive review. It was a third and possibly final defeat for Theresa May on Friday. She brought back her Brexit deal for a sort of meaningful vote to the House of Commons and failed to get it through, although she did slash the government's loss down to a mere 58 votes. So, George Parker, this came through as a result of a deadline set by the EU, which said if you want to get this deal through and you want to have a orderly Brexit, you must have a meaningful vote this week. So Theresa May was compelled to have another vote and she did this slightly odd thing of splitting up the political declaration and the withdrawal agreement to try and please the Speaker. That worked, but her tactics to win the vote didn't. Yeah, I would say that the vote on Friday was a mixture of high politics and political shenanigans, to be honest. As you say, there was an agreement at the European Council the previous week that unless you had this withdrawal agreement ratified by the House of Commons by Friday, then we wouldn't be able to take advantage of the extension until May the 22nd. On the other hand, there was quite a lot of pressure in the Cabinet, including from Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary, saying it would be a good idea for political reasons to have this vote on Friday, Brexit Day, as a way of putting pressure on people, Labour MPs representing leave areas, for example, or Eurosceptic Tory MPs to come and vote for this because could they be seen to be voting against Brexit on the very day we were supposed to be leaving the EU? And I think the other thing was that they were concerned that the Speaker might rule it out of order otherwise if they hadn't split this vote in half because John Burke had made it absolutely clear if you keep presenting the same deal in exactly the same form, he would have turned it down. So splitting it in two was a way of getting around the Burke blockade. But the result of this, James Blitz, was that it wasn't classified as a proper meaningful vote. So even if it had passed on Friday, they would have still had to have a separate vote to get the political declaration through. So it was an effective way of getting around the Speaker, but it didn't really convince people, particularly Labour MPs, only which five of them ultimately backed the deal. Yes, all in all, as an operation, it hasn't worked for Theresa May. I mean, if you look back over the last three votes, she lost by a very significant margin on January the 15th, well into the 200s, came down a bit the second time on March the 12th, but here, still a loss of 58 votes. And what happened, in effect, was she got a certain amount of the ERG on board. People like Quite a lot, actually. Quite a lot. Yeah, she got quite a lot of the ERG, but certainly not the hardcore of Tory MPs who were absolutely against her deal. She didn't get the Democratic Unionist Party absolutely firmly against. And at the end of Friday, still looking as though they would never come round. 
and she didn't get the Labour MPs on board. And in many ways, one of the problems there was that her commitment earlier in the week to stand down once she gets the deal through has actually alienated a lot of Labour MPs because they're saying, well, if I back this deal, even if I'm supporting leave, even if I back it, what's likely is I'm actually hastening the process where someone like Boris Johnson might take over. So all in all, the tactics of the week didn't really work very well for the Prime Minister. Because for Theresa May, George, it was a three-pronged approach, as James was just saying. First of all, it was to convince Brexiters that it was her deal or no Brexit. That worked quite effectively, and the ERG was brought down to a grump of about 28 people, which was probably as small as it was really going to get, with the big beasts such as Boris Johnson, Ian Duncan Smith and Dominic Raab all folded this week and went back on the very harsh things they'd said about the deal to now back it. But as James was just saying, she made no progress with Labour MPs and crucially the DUP were completely refused to budge throughout this week and as we record this on Friday afternoon look as if they're completely sent against caving at all which makes it almost impossible for her to have any hope of a fourth attempt to get that deal through. Well it seems quite unlikely doesn't it? Let's look at the 58 vote defeat that she suffered let's call it 60 and as you say there were 28 hardcore Eurosceptics who voted against the deal. Let's say you could get that down to 18. That's probably the irreducible core of ERG people who will never support it. They could be moved if the 10 DUP MPs came on board. And I think I agree with you, Seb, that's a, looking increasingly unlikely given how resilient they've proven to blandishments from number 10. And that will get the majority down to 20. Then you need 10 Labour MPs to come across to support the deal. And that's possible because there's always a view that more Labour MPs would come across and support the deal if it looked like it was going to win. So 10 more hardcore Eurosceptics, 10 DUP, 10 Labour, and Theresa May squeaks it over the line. But I mean, it's pretty hard to imagine all those cards falling the right way. Is Theresa May going to come back with this deal for a fourth time? If she does... One of the things that's been discussed on Friday is the idea that you would have a runoff between Theresa May's deal, we'll probably come on to this in a minute, and the kind of alternative plan B that the House of Commons might agree on when they have these indicative votes lined up for Monday. So let's just jump back earlier in the week, James, to Wednesday, which was a big day for the House of Commons. It was the first time in 140 years, I think, that MPs controlled the ballot paper. And this was the cunning plan produced by Sir Oliver Letwin, the Tory grandee who wants to stop a no-deal Brexit. And he's tried several times to get this scheme through to give MPs the power to control what happens. They succeeded. And on Wednesday, that went through. And we had this series of indicative votes. And Maybe to no one's surprise, there was no majority for anything. MPs were mostly voting in a free vote. They weren't being whipped apart from the cabinet who abstained. There was almost a majority for a customs union. A people's vote, I thought, was surprisingly close with only 27 off a majority. But apart from that, it was once again MPs saying what they don't want and no sign of what they do. Yes, that is correct. And initially, that is an embarrassment for Sir Oliver Letwin and the people who are promoting it because they weren't able to come out with that. But to be fair to them, and Oliver Letwin seemed to be clear about this at the start, they were never expecting this first phase to produce something definitive. It was more of a sounding out of where opinion is. The critical question now is what happens on Monday because they're coming back for a second round. And the critical question now is whether there is going to be something close to or even a majority for permanent membership of the customs union as well as Theresa May's deal. If the House of Commons votes for permanent membership of the customs union, which perform best 
on Wednesday, then you really are into a very interesting situation indeed, because that could be a majority of the House going for that. And then Theresa May has an enormous decision to take. Is she going to run with permanent membership of the customs union, champion it, negotiate the final phase of that with the European Union? Or is she going to basically say, I can't do this, there's a standoff between the executive and the commons, and we go down another road, maybe an election? That's the question now. This is really what everyone's wondering in Westminster, George, because the Prime Minister has so clearly ruled out a permanent customs union, Mm. saying that we wouldn't be able to strike free trade deals. It would not deliver on the referendum result. But if Parliament mandates her, if it finds a way to make that vote binding, do you think she'll go for it? What's the sense from Downing Street? Well, so far, they've been very resistant. Although Theresa May on Friday after her defeat was saying she was willing to work with the House of Commons on this. But James just listed some of the problems with doing it. It is true the House of Commons could probably find a way to legislate to force Theresa May or whoever the Prime Minister is to negotiate this with Brussels. And it's certainly true that an activist speaker like John Burke would find the parliamentary procedure to allow that to happen. So let's say Parliament wants Theresa May to do something she doesn't want to do to keep Britain in a customs union. She might act in the national interest and pursue this. Now, if she did that, the first thing that would happen is there'd probably be some cabinet resignations by Eurosceptics. The Eurosceptic wing of the party, the ERG, would go on strike. They would refuse to back the government in any votes, not relating to just relating to Brexit, but other things. Then Theresa May, to get this legislation through the House of Commons, would rely on Labour votes night after night after night to get it through, with the ERG going down to the pub or going home or whatever. Do we really think in the real world that Jeremy Corbyn is going to help Theresa May out in that scenario? And would Theresa May take the risk of putting her, her deal and her political future in the hands of Jeremy Corbyn? I'm not sure. She could stand down and say, I'm not prepared to do this as Prime Minister and trigger a Tory leadership contest. Then we end up with a more Eurosceptic leader who would be equally unable to deliver that or unwilling to deliver a customs union. And all those routes, it seemed to me, lead back to a general election. That was the next point I was going to come on to because Theresa May made the most striking words yet, George, about a general election. That after the defeat on the third time, she said that this process is reaching the limits of this House, which you could either say, oh, well, that means an election, or it could mean a second referendum. Now, the reasons for that, James, seem quite obvious because you've got a broadly Remain-supporting Parliament and a Leave-supporting Conservative Party and the country as a whole of itself voted to leave the EU. But how could we actually get to a general election? Because it requires a confidence vote. And really to get to that, you've got to get Conservative MPs to vote for an election. And I just can't see them doing that right now. Well, I think we'd have to go through it step by step. I mean, number one, let's assume that Mrs May has decided she's not going down the permanent customs union route. Okay, So she's rejecting what's happened on alternative votes. And she said, that's the limits of the efficacy of this parliament, as she said on Friday. She could then do the following. One, she has to go to the European Council and say, I want an extension, a long extension, and the reason I want it is for a general election. The Europeans have accepted that that would be a legitimate reason. So that's the first thing you can tick. Secondly, under the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, if two-thirds of MPs vote to dissolve the Parliament and have an immediate election, it will happen. I could well imagine a situation in which Mrs May says, I want to do that, Jeremy Corbyn would support it, the SNP on Friday was saying it wanted an election, you could well reach that two-thirds. The problem with the scenario is, this is the Conservative Party going into a general election in the following circumstances. One, with Theresa May's 
leader when she is clearly the most enfeebled Conservative leader one has seen in a very, very long time, if ever. Secondly, the party is completely split over policy on Brexit, so you've got a problem with the manifesto. Thirdly, as John Curtis pointed out in a poll this week, 80% of Leave voters think that the Conservatives have made a complete pig's ear of Brexit. So the election strategy, although it may seem an attractive way out of the impasse, from the Conservative Party's point of view, is not really great. It does look like an opportunity for Jeremy Corbyn. And when you look at the research from uh, Professor Curtis George, the parliament that would be produced doesn't look a whole lot different than we've got at the moment, that yes, Labour might gain a couple of seats or the Conservatives might end up roughly where they are, but you're not going to get a clear majority for either party. So once again, we back to this stalemate. But the thing that we do now know is that the 22nd of May as a date now seems to be off the table because mm. the EU had said, if you want to leave on that date, i.e. you have passed the deal, you get it all into law and you leave smoothly, you have to have passed a meaningful vote this this week. That hasn't happened. So the question now is, do we leave without a deal in two weeks today or do we have another extension? Exactly. And uh, Martin Selmayr, the Secretary General of the European Commission, tweeted straight after Friday's vote that April the 12th was the new March the 29th. And um, there will be a European summit on April the 10th where all these issues will be considered. And uh, as James was saying, the EU is prepared to grant Britain a longer extension. If Britain takes part in the European elections, that would be a prerequisite of that. And if Theresa May is able to give a convincing reason for needing this extension, what is she planning to do? Is she planning to go down a new route? Is she planning to have a general election? And given the fact that Theresa May has made it quite clear in recent statements, at least, that she thinks that Parliament will object to Britain leaving without a deal because of the economic damage it would cause, it seems to me that most likely if we get to April the 10th and no deal has been agreed in the House of Commons in the meantime, she'll be forced to ask for a long extension and there are reports that local authorities are being asked to make sports halls and other things ready and available for a, an election on May the 23rd. And by this I mean, by the way, a, a European election. And that is the key thing, James, that Theresa May has always said, to have European Parliament elections three years after we've left the EU could be a very damaging thing because people did vote to leave and by electing MEPs you're participating in those institutions again and who knows what kind of MEPs we would produce in that election so even though that does look as if we are heading towards the series of European Parliament elections if we want that long extension George was talking about. Yeah that is exactly right I mean I think it's right now looking pretty likely that they're going to happen and for the Conservatives that is an enormous setback because it's what they don't want and goodness knows how that campaign will go. The central question though is in the end how are we going to get out of this impasse in Britain? Is it going to be no deal? Is May going to get her deal through somehow? Are we going to have some kind of permanent customs union arrangement that is pushed through? Or alternatively are we going for a general election led by an enfeebled leader? I think it's really hard to know which of those four it's going to be. If this was, a, if one can call it, a sensible political situation, or if Parliament were sensible, if there was a majority of MPs who back May's deal plus permanent customs union, and this is what would happen in a lot of European countries, you would have a new executive formed within this Parliament under a new Prime Minister say someone like David Liddington or someone like Yvette Cooper, who would push through that policy. That ought to be how the political system works. But British politics is so tribal that I 
don't immediately see that we're going to go down that road. Well, I mean, the politics that James used to cover when he was our Rome correspondent tended to bring in the technocrats at points like this, which unfortunately isn't going to work in the British system. But I agree, that is the problem, that you still require a prime minister elected by the members of the largest party, which is the Conservative Party. And that is the problem, having a Conservative leader willing to pursue a strategy which Maybe the will of the House of Commons, which has the unfortunate side effect of potentially destroying your own party. And one thing we have seen from this week is everybody is still very much playing party politics here. Because by separating out the political declaration, the withdrawal agreement, there was no real reason for the Labour Party to vote that down today. They know this is the only deal on the table. And if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister and he takes that deal, it is going to look exactly the same. The reason they didn't vote it was because they are, as you said, concerned that a Conservative leader will come along and rewrite the political declaration, but that would have been the case anyway. Yes, I think that's true. And Jeremy Corbyn himself has said in the past they don't have any great problem with the withdrawal agreement. And, of course, it's a fact, as Theresa May keeps pointing out, that any final Brexit deal will involve the House of Commons ratifying a withdrawal agreement. The EU is not going to change the withdrawal agreement. It will be the bedrock of any future deal. So, yes, there's a lot of party politics being played, but this is Westminster. It's been a pretty grim week. So That's a very important point that George has made, and you were making as well, Seb. This is, when you stand back, in one sense, an utterly artificial debate we're having in the UK. The withdrawal agreement, if you want to have Brexit, is going to have to be passed no matter what happens. And the political declaration, no matter what that is, is basically pretty fluid and changeable after we've left. So there's an awful lot of party politics going on here, which doesn't actually make a lot of sense to anybody who's just looking for the British to take a decision and get on with it. So let's just finally cast forward to next week and we'll just try and take this thing one week at a time or one day at a time at the moment. We will have those next series of indicative votes on Monday and I think probably you will see a majority for a customs union because in the last series of indicative votes, the SNP didn't vote for it and the Tiggers, the independent group or Change UK as they've rebranded themselves this week. They didn't vote for it. And you could see either them or some more Conservatives coming on board. And then it goes to the question we were talking about earlier is does Theresa May accept that or not? Then we have the European Council meeting the week after that where they will decide the terms for a long extension. Do you think Downing Street will do anything proactively, George? Because we obviously know Theresa May has said she is going to go if her deal is going to get passed. We're talking about that later in the podcast. But is there anything else Theresa May could do at this point. Is there time for another meaningful vote? Well, I don't think it's in Theresa May's nature, if you follow the way she's handled this throughout, to let herself, I mean, it's hard to imagine this as a concept, but she doesn't like being used as a political punch bag by Parliament. She does always try to at least give some semblance that she's got a grip on the process. So after the votes on Monday, the indicative votes, there is some talk in number 10 Downing Street, and then trying to force the House of Commons into making a decision between whatever emerges from the indicative votes. And I agree with you, Customs Union is the most likely outcome, and maybe having a runoff in Parliament between the preferred option of the House of Commons, the Customs Union, versus Theresa May's deal. Pick or choose which one you like. And in those circumstances, I don't know what James thinks, but my guess is probably the House of Commons will opt for the Customs Union version. I'd agree with that. Yes, I think it's quite likely. I mean, clearly, if the Customs Union has emerged, people who on the hard Brexiter wing will have to think one more time if May were able to bring her deal back. But the fact is that what's been lost now by the government is the momentum, because the momentum is now with the indicative votes process. And control. They've lost control. control. They've lost control. If the customs union is passed, 
not only could you have a majority for that, but also Oliver Letwin has now built into this process the possibility of actually legislating to mandate the government to do it. So there's a great deal on the common side. So my guess is that is the direction we're going in. But I still don't see how this very reluctant Theresa May is going to champion this. Somebody else, perhaps, David Liddington, who knows, would have to do it. Especially since, as we've said many times, a customs union probably splits the Conservative Party. As well as the events of Friday, Wednesday was a pretty momentous day in Westminster. After weeks and months of people telling her she would have to go, Theresa May bowed to the inevitable. The Prime Minister told a meeting of her MPs that she would resign if, and only if, her deal was passed by Parliament. So that means as soon as May the 22nd, a Conservative leadership contest could be underway, even though it has sort of already begun under the radar. Robert Shrimsley It's been quite clear for such a long time now that Theresa May was going to have to go before she intended to because she announced a couple of months ago she would not take the party into the next general election due in 2022. But everyone from Graham Brady, who's the most senior Conservative backbencher, to the Chief Whip Julian Smith had told her, if you've got any hope of getting this deal through Parliament, then it's going to have to be on your head. Yeah, I think actually we're all sort of amazed that she's still Prime Minister now. The number of defeats she's had on the most staggeringly important legislation would in any normal circumstance have done for her at the beginning of the year. So it's remarkable. She's clung on and, as you say, technically can still cling on, in her own words, if her deal is voted down, which is a toughie for Remainers, isn't it? Do you want Brexit or do you want May? But I think she is over regardless. And although she has said she's only done if she gets her deal through. She has also said that she as Prime Minister could not support a long extension. So if she doesn't get her deal through, that is probably what we're heading unless she's suddenly gone back to no deal Brexit again. So in reality, we're in the final weeks of May. The only question is whether the last weeks of May are April, May or June. Miranda Green, they've obviously tried to frame this from Downing Street's perspective as get the deal through and you get a new prime minister. But the fact she said that makes her a lame duck. You know, the folks I've spoken to this week have said, well, if we have a no deal Brexit, then the chaos will be so great, we'll probably end up spilling into an election and that will may do for her anyway. And if we get a long extension, can she really remain on? I know practically she can because Conservative MPs can't vote her out again until the end of this year. But as Robert was just saying, it feels like this is it for Mrs May. It does. Um, I think it's been a long time coming because it's been a gradual story of the qualities for which she was admired. Probably you would call that resilience being transformed into an absolutely impossible rigidity and inability to move with the flow of events and bring this to a successful conclusion in terms of Brexit stage one. So this late stage of the peculiar May premiership, and it has been extremely peculiar, has really been about just attrition and an exercise of her bludgeoning everybody else so that a bit like the leadership contest in which she triumphed, she's just the last person standing. That's how she operates. But it's unsustainable going forward, as you say. She can't fight another election as Tory leader. They've all been very clear about that for a long time. And she absolutely can't be the person to do the second stage of negotiations. You did use the phrase, she would become a lame duck, Seb. And I would just like to postulate as to what a lame duck Theresa May looks like, given what we've been watching for the last six months. That is a very valid point indeed. Now, in that 19... 
22 committee meeting of backbench Tory MPs. Everyone was expecting Theresa May to say something about leadership, Robert, but it was particularly explicit, I think more so than we'd been led to expect. And as soon as she said it, as we thought was going to happen, the Eurosceptic started to fold. And you could say where they were being practical, but you could also say it was quite unseemly because the ERG, the European Research Group, met hour later after that meeting. And as expected, Boris Johnson, after saying the most extraordinary list of things, which I think you wrote in a very good satire column that was taken as accurate by too many people on Twitter this week, he then suddenly changed his mind and backed behind a deal that he got a betrayal, selling out, would creators, slaves, the list goes on. It's quite staggering, the speed with which Boris turned the moment she said that. I thought he'd try and put a gloss on it, maybe give himself 12 hours to make it like he'd thought about it overnight. But oh no, the moment the leadership was up for grabs, he switched. It's staggering. There's something so squalid about all of this. It's squalid of her to offer herself up in this way on that deal. It's squalid of anybody who thinks this is a legitimate compromise. It shows what we've all known, which is this has always been about the Conservative Party and about positions within the Conservative as much as it has been about Brexit. We were in the lobby together on Wednesday night. I mean, it really looked like it was working. The logjam was breaking. The ERG members were falling like dominoes. There was a hard core, but they were falling. And it really did seem to unblock it. In reality, this is a position they should have realised they were going to have to get to some months ago. It's been apparent, in my opinion, since the Chequers Agreement, that this was where we were going to end up. Many of us said this was going to happen, that in the end, the biggest risk to Brexit happening became the Brexiters themselves in their demands for an absolutely pure Brexit. We would be over the line by now if the ERG had bowed to the inevitable that it is now bowing to in January. Brexit would have happened. I think also it's really interesting the change in that, I mean, we know that the ERG tried to bring May down last December because they've wanted their own hardliner in there for a while. And the Remainers, in a sense, have been sort of protecting her premiership. And actually, by last week, when things were looking really bad for her, I was thinking, how can we have this situation of somebody in number 10 who has the confidence of no one? It's a peculiar situation. But actually, there had been for quite a long time inside the cabinet, a kind of weird, mutually assured destruction situation where you've got a balanced cabinet between leavers and remainers, both thinking, well, the status quo is appalling, but what comes next could be worse. But now, once you're over to the body of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, it's now all about who are those two names that will go through the stage of who the MPs pick to the membership. And I'm very intrigued by this idea that there are some remainy centrist Tory MPs who are saying, over my dead body, will the name of anybody who's behaved this badly and switching at the last moment go forward in those last two names? But are there enough to stop them? Just before we get on to what the contest next, there was one very notable person, Robert, who didn't change his mind. That was Steve Baker, who is deputy chair of the ERG. And while Jacob Rees-Mogg has changed his mind, he's head of that caucus. Steve Baker gave this impassioned speech at the ERG meeting with some extraordinary words where he said, I could tear this place down and bulldoze it into the river. These fools and knaves and cowards are voting on things they don't even understand. I may yet resign the whip than be part of this. So I think we can probably put him down as a maybe. That's the voice of democracy for you. I mean, he has been interesting over the last few weeks because up until two or three weeks ago, he always came across as a rather 
calculating, controlled figure, thinking through the strategy. What's the next step? I always thought his reputation as a master strategist was somewhat overstated. But nonetheless, he seemed quite cold-headed. And all of a sudden, he's become staggeringly emotional about this and responding in very, very hot-headed terms. But it has to be said also that ERG members were flocking together and hugging him at the end of this speech. And they were referring to themselves as the Spartans, ready to make a last-ditch stand against Theresa May. So I think it's fair to say that emotion has got the better of people. So Miranda, as you said, it's now all focused on the leadership contest. And the rough reading of it seems to be there are four leading candidates and then a whole lot of other candidates who will throw their hat in, many of them looking for better cabinet jobs like Amber Rudd, for example. So I hear that she's actually not going to run, but will instead rally behind Boris Johnson or Michael Gove to try and be the first female chancellor. But out of those four big beasts, if you want to call them that, you've got Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab, Jeremy Hunt and Michael Gove. What do you make of the selection? Well, I think it's interesting that Dominic Raab has managed to get his name into a list of big beasts. I wouldn't call him that myself. But and I would say that he's probably the biggest danger to the long term health of the Conservative Party, in my view, as a sort of non aligned moderate voter. Because I think what you have to realise is while the Conservative Party will be looking at these names in the context of the next stage of Brexit, the electorate will be looking at these names in terms of who do we actually want to govern the country. I mean, this week, in amidst all the Brexit turmoil, we had some really serious figures come out about the rise in child poverty among families where both parents are working. There are things that need to be fixed in the UK. And the Cameron project that went so disastrously wrong to try and make the Conservative Party feel as if it was mainstream and relatable to the ordinary voter. You know, it's gone off the rails in such a big way with the Brexit project that when you look at those four names, you've really got to think, can any of these people actually drag the Tory back to a position where they represent the whole country? Obviously, the Brexit context makes that much more complicated. But you would hope that the Tory MPs, or at least some of them, would be able to see it in the context of who's electable and who can solve the nation's problems, not just who they want to deliver their particular brand of second stage Brexit. This is the real question, Robert. Are they going to choose a leader that makes them feel good about Brexit? Or are they going to choose someone who leads them into winning the next election? Because Boris Johnson is still the favourite because most Tory MPs acknowledge he's the only person who has decent net ratings with the public. He's the only person with name recognition and the only person, as one MP pointed to me, who can actually tell a joke and has a personality compared to the others. If you compare Boris to, say, Dominic Rabin, the personality stakes, it's clear Boris is ahead of that. I mean, I've reported on and covered and watched a lot of Conservative leadership elections. And in general, the favourite and frontrunner does not make it. One has to start with that point that they are quite capable of picking somebody who is obviously the wrong person because of their ideological purity. But I think Miranda, in her analysis, is exactly right. I mean, this contest will be defined by Brexit and what comes next. There's no way around that. And that's a disaster potentially for the Conservative Party. Up until now, what the Brexiters have done quite cleverly is aligned Brexit to fighting austerity. They've offered Brexit as an option for a way out of austerity. And the point is, underpinning all of the issues that the country and the government and politics face 
is the impact of austerity across Britain, especially once you get out of the more well-heeled areas of the southeast. It's really biting. The damage to services that you see across the board is really meaningful. And the Conservatives look like a party that just does not understand that fact. Now, there are people in the Conservative Party who do understand it. And actually, some of them were Brexiters because they aligned to that point. But the person who they should elect has clearly got to be somebody who can now create a sense of unity, lift their eyes beyond the negotiations over stage two of Brexit, or let's face it, could still be stage one. We're not sure where we're going to be. And say, I have a recipe for the country. And if you think back to when Theresa May won, we watched her, I remember discussing it with Miranda particularly, we watched her on the steps of Downing Street, and she was saying exactly the right things that a Conservative Party leader should have been saying. Now, of course, she completely failed to deliver on them. But they need to pick a candidate who can take that message beyond the narrow issue of Brexit. I think it's interesting on that point you both make that Sajid Javid was the candidate looking towards that space there because he doesn't want to talk about Brexit in this race because he was someone who flirted with leave and then back to remain and is sort of not really trusted by party. But when you look, there was an interesting YouGov poll out this week, Miranda, about which candidate would help the Tories do best in the next election. And people on Team Sajid have been pushing that poll around this week, just saying, just remember, if you want to hold your marginal seats, if you want to beat Corbyn, and at the moment, Sajid is the best man to do that, or so the polls say. Well, it's an interesting conundrum for them. I mean, the problem that he's got, I think, is also that this question that the Tories have retoxified their brand in the last three years, that we're discussing, essentially, after the Cameron Project to try to detoxify it. Javid does sort of jump very firmly in the wrong direction on a lot of issues. He strikes me as somebody who is trying to slightly overcompensate to reassure the right. But he would be a different sort of Tory leader. I think the problem is, having had three years of May trying to prove that she's not a Remainer, I don't know if I can cope, to be honest, with three years of somebody who looks as if they might be a bit more liberal, actually constantly trying to prove what a hardliner they are on things like immigration. Because the Tory party, it's not just Brexit, the Tory party has got a huge problem with its image because of the Windrush scandal and its attitude to immigration. This is something in stage two Brexit, you know, what kind of country do we want to be? Are we open? Are we multicultural? It would be a horrible irony to have the son of a Pakistani bus driver make the UK more hardline on immigration because he felt he had to to please his own right wing. There are two points I think I'd make. The first is it's clearly in the interest of the Conservative Party to elect a leader who is trusted by the leave side of the argument, has leave credentials, but is capable of moving beyond them and moving back to some of the conservatism that David Cameron attempted to bring into the Conservative Party to heal and unify. And that is not someone who has the badge of approval from the ERG. That's point one. The second point I'd make is that whoever wins the leadership still has no majority. They are still going to be leading a party that is a minority government in a very, very difficult circumstance with not a lot of money to spend. And they are very quickly going to look like a weak leader, not because there's anything deficient with them necessarily, but because they do not have the majority to make it work. Therefore, the sensible thing for the Conservative Party to do in its own interest is elect the person who they think can most quickly dash to the polls and get a decent result, because this current parliament, as it stands, is unsustainable for dealing with ordinary issues, let alone Brexit. And we saw that with Mrs May, that she came in, had no intention for an election, and the pressure on her, as well as a healthy dollop of 
hubris meant that she felt she had to go to the country, which on that point, Robert, brings me to one candidate who previously people were very distrustful of, but there seems to have been some momentum building over the past couple of weeks, and that is Michael Gove. Now, he was one of the key figures in the Vote Leave campaign, although to many Brexiters, he is now seen as having betrayed Brexit because he backed extending the Brexit date. He's backed Theresa May's deal. But he is a Cameroon reformer, and there are many Remainers in the Conservative Parliamentary Party who would support him, as well as Brexiters. And if you can imagine the Boris Johnson and the Dominic Raab campaigns, Exploding, Michael Gove could come sailing through. Now, whether Michael Gove could win a general election is a very different point. I think that is the point, actually. I think if you look dispassionately at the likely contenders and you could eliminate all your concerns about their views and just look at them as operators, I think Michael Gove is a very strong figure. As a minister, he's been interesting, he's been effective, whether you like what he did or not. He's someone who's shown an ability to go into a department he doesn't know, listen to the issues and react to it. He's a trusted lever, but not an obsessive lever because he stayed behind Theresa May. And as you say, he does have liberal instincts. So in many respects, he's an attractive candidate. But the problem is we know from all the opinion polls that he's deeply toxic with the electorate. The voters do not like him and they do not trust him. So I think that's a fundamental problem for him. I have to say Conservative MPs, and I think this may be less true of the party membership, but MPs are going to look at this and one of their first questions is going to be, who is going to save my seat? Who gives me the best chance of getting re-elected? That's why Boris is the front runner still. And the person I also find very interesting, who I think is pretty much going to run Miranda, is Matt Hancock, the health secretary, who is used to be a very close ally of George Osborne. And the sense has been that now that Amber Rudd is really out of this race, this, that sort of part of the party, the progressive wing, if you like, are going to rally behind Hancock. And he's in an interesting position because he's done a lot of no-deal planning. So a lot of Brexit in the party say he's put himself in the right position, but he's very socially liberal. And he is, I guess, the kind of guy Robert's talking about who who appears relatively unknown to the country, but seems quite normally. I think that's right. And he's quite untainted in a way. And I was thinking back on covering the Tory party just as David Cameron became leader. And it's that feeling when somebody bounces onto the stage that's not the obvious people and cheers everybody up, as Robert says, makes them feel they might just save their seats. And Hancock could arguably fill that role. We haven't discussed Jeremy Hunt, who's seen as a massive compromise cabinet favourite. But again, I would have to say, I think obviously it's been a huge relief having Jeremy Hunt in the Foreign Office after Boris Johnson. But Again, you know, with Hunt, some of the utterances from Hunt as foreign secretary about the EU, comparing it to the Soviet Union, etc., you've still got this same problem that you had with May of a Remainer desperately trying to prove their hardline Brexity status to the party. So, you know, I think you're right, actually, Seb. I think somebody slightly more left field like Hancock would have a quite a good chance. Can we just go back to Michael Go for a second, though? Because I do think he's one of the most interesting people in politics. And so... In a sense, when his biography comes to be written... It's he, actually he, being written at the moment. Well, I'm delighted to hear it, but maybe they should wait a bit. I think he might turn out to be one of those really, really interesting nearly men because you can see how he's learned from his early mistakes, actually. He, the reason he's hated by half the electorate is because of the terrible mistakes he made when he was Education Secretary. But in all his subsequent cabinet jobs, he's done brilliantly at bringing people on side. And actually, he could pull it off in a way. The one point I'd make about 
the right person to be Conservative leader. And one of the reasons why I think people were initially so interested in Sajid Javid is I do think they need to elect someone who looks a little bit normal, who looks a little bit like most voters, the kind of person they can associate with. Boris is off on a different sphere and so different rules apply to him. But as far as the others go, I think someone who looks smug, well-heeled, not really aware of the life of, of ordinary voters is going to be a problem for them. I'm not sure who that person is that meets it, but it's got to be someone. And that's it for this week's episode. I'm sure we will be returning to the leadership question one or so twice in the weeks to come. Thank you to George, James, Miranda and Robert for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to enjoy more FT journalism, then you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Elliot Keim. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.